0: Welcome to Your Child's Brain, a podcast series produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from WYPR. I'm Dr. Brad Schlager, pediatric neurologist and president and CEO of Kennedy Krieger Institute. In today's episode, we will discuss cerebral palsy with a particular focus on mental health issues faced by patients with cerebral palsy. First, a bit of history. Cerebral palsy is an old term in medicine. Cerebral means the brain and palsy means weakness. Cerebral palsy, then, is intended to refer to weakness or, more broadly, issues with voluntary movement that stem from a problem or problems in the developing brain. The term cerebral palsy was first coined in 1887 by Dr. William Osler, just two years before he moved from Philadelphia to Baltimore to become the very first physician-in-chief at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in 1889, the year of its founding. Several years later, Osler was instrumental in the establishment of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where, a generation later, Dr. Winthrop Phelps completed his medical degree in 1920 and initially trained at Johns Hopkins Hospital and Baltimore Children's Hospital in pediatric medicine before heading to Harvard for further training in orthopedic surgery. Dr. Phelps became very interested in understanding how to help children with movement problems that arose after early brain injury, namely cerebral palsy. This interest brought him back to Baltimore in 1936, where he set up a practice for the treatment and rehabilitation of children with cerebral palsy. In the following year, 1937, he founded the Children's Rehabilitation Institute. He not only brought an interdisciplinary and often non-surgical approach to cerebral palsy, he also trained clinicians and helped to set up cerebral palsy programs elsewhere. Dr. Phelps's Children's Rehabilitation Institute is the forebearer of the present day Kennedy Krieger Institute, having merged in 1967 with the then newly established John F. Kennedy Institute for Habilitation of the Mentally and Physically Handicapped Child in East Baltimore, adjacent to the Johns Hopkins Medical School campus. Indeed, to this day, We at Kennedy Krieger honor Dr. Phelps' legacy with the Phelps Center for Cerebral Palsy at Kennedy Krieger Institute. The idea that significant mental health issues are not only common in children with neurodevelopmental disorders, but they also can appear clinically different in important ways when compared to children who are typically developing, that idea also is a Baltimore Kennedy Krieger Johns Hopkins medicine story. As our first director of psychiatry at Kennedy Krieger, the late Dr. Jim Harris, who also directed child and adolescent psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, founded the field of developmental neuropsychiatry roughly 40 years ago. A legacy that we fully embrace through neuropsychiatric clinical care and we disseminate through research and clinical training. So I'm excited to be joined today by two of my exceptional colleagues from Kennedy Krieger Institute, Dr. Heather Reardon, a child neurologist, is the medical director of the Phelps Center for Cerebral Palsy at Kennedy Krieger. She's also an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Aaron Hauptman, a pediatric and adult neuropsychiatrist, is the associate director of neuropsychiatry at Kennedy Krieger Institute. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. So welcome, Heather and Aaron. And let's start out with you, Heather. I said a bit about the term cerebral palsy, but let's get into some details. What is it? Why is it called cerebral palsy? What is the incidence rate? Are things getting better? Are the numbers going up or down?
1: As you mentioned earlier, the term cerebral palsy is actually quite old, although we have tried to refine the definition over time. So at this point, cerebral palsy is defined as something that started in the infant brain. So really sometime before the child turned two that is non-progressive, meaning there are not more um, problems with the brain that are developing over time or damage or, or abnormalities. And that affects movement and posture. I think it's important when we talk about this to realize that that's a very broad definition and it says nothing about why an individual might have cerebral palsy. Um, and there are actually many different causes of cerebral palsy. In the US, currently it is estimated that between two to three and 1,000 children are born each year with cerebral palsy. Um, and when you compare that, it, that sounds like Not a lot, but when you compare that to other childhood illnesses, for example, childhood cancer, um, it's 10 times more common than childhood cancer. It's five times more common than the the relatively common genetic disorders like cystic fibrosis. It is actually quite a prominent problem within our society. There is some evidence that there may be some hope on the horizon with some slight improvements in the rates of cerebral palsy over the last few years with changes in the NICU, but these changes are very slight and uh, we need to do better.
0: So you mentioned uh, that there are multiple causes of cerebral palsy. Can can we get into that? What what kinds of causes are there and are, are there factors that increase the likelihood of a diagnosis of cerebral palsy?
1: So I think one of the myths around cerebral palsy is that it is always due to something that an obstetrician did wrong. Um, There's a lot of evidence that shows that in the vast majority of kids, cerebral palsy is due to something that started even before a child was born. We do know that there are some risk factors such as prematurity, infection, um, brain bleeds, things like that early Mm -hmm. in life. Um, And we also know that there are some classic findings that we see on MRI in most children with cerebral palsy, but not all. Um, Classically, cerebral palsy has been thought of as injury to the developing brain in the um, myelination or insulation that exists around the individual neurons, similar to the plastic that exists around wires um, in our electronics. But more and more, we're realizing that it's not that simple, like most things in life. 20% Um, twenty percent of people with with cerebral palsy actually have completely normal MRI, so no signs of that type of um, damage. And we now know that up to thirty five percent of people with cerebral palsy have a primary genetic cause when we're doing deep um, genetic testing. And as I suspect that as we get more information and do more studies, we're going to find that, Many more people have either a primary genetic cause of their cerebral palsy or genetic factors that combined with their other risk factors to result in the cerebral palsy picture.
0: Yeah, that, that combination of uh, genetic factors with perhaps some environmental effect is, is really uh, important for us to work through as uh, the etiology, the, the complex etiology of, of cerebral palsy and, and other kinds of neurodevelopmental disorders and CP, as we talked about, cerebral palsy, sometimes I'll say CP, is, is really defined as a motor system problem, but it, what you've just been describing, it can be a brain-wide issue, right? So what are some of the other functions of the brain that are implicated, like sensation or intellectual function, uh,
1: mm-hmm. emotional,
0: affective function, executive function, and, and so on?
1: The term cerebral palsy is defined by the motor symptoms. And there are many people with cerebral palsy who don't have other co-occurring neurological conditions. But because these um, abnormalities in the brain can affect areas that also lead to other neurological symptoms, um, we do see a lot of different things that can present in these patients. Um, So up to half of patients with cerebral palsy will have intellectual disability. And up to a quarter of them will have um, epilepsy. Similarly, ADHD or specific learning disabilities may be common even though for those who have normal intelligence or above normal intelligence. So it's really important in our higher um, functioning individuals with cerebral palsy that we're keeping um, our eyes out for this that we can make sure we're supporting them appropriately as they're going through school and even entering the college environment.
0: In terms of the, the way cerebral palsy appears clinically, are there gradations or, or different types? What, what are some of the motor system signs and symptoms in individuals with cerebral palsy that may delineate the different ways that they can present in terms of motor function?
1: I'm going to borrow a term from the autism world right now, which goes, if you've met one person with cerebral palsy, you know one person with cerebral palsy. And I think that's important. Many people have some picture in their mind from somebody that they may have known in high school or somewhere else and not realize how diverse um, the different symptoms and presentations of this condition can be. Um, in terms of severity, we have many people in our community that we are in contact with that come to our clinics who are lawyers or doctors or have really important government of, um, you know, positions. And if you look at them, you might notice a little difference in their limp or a little bit of difference in their arm. Um, But it would, it's relatively subtle. You also have children or individuals who have difficulty completing any of their motor tasks independently, like dressing or bathing or things like that. Similarly, there's a gradation in the types of motor symptoms that you can have, and this depends very much on what parts of the brain are involved um, with the underlying cause of the cerebral palsy. So the most common we, symptom we see is something called spasticity, which is um, a kind of a motor stiffness, particularly if you're moving the muscles fat, quickly. Um, The second most common is something called dyskinetic cerebral palsy, which is basically where the body has extra movements that it does on their own that are involuntary. The third type of cerebral palsy is ataxic cerebral palsy, which is basically difficulty coordinating movements, similar to what would happen if somebody indulged in too much alcohol. We used to say that the vast majority of people had spasticity and spasticity alone, but some more recent studies from Australia show that over half of people actually have a mixture where they have some of those dyskinetic symptoms as well as the spastic symptoms. And that's really important in guiding treatments since there may be treatments that really only work for one or the other. So it opens avenues for more options.
0: Heather, you, you mentioned earlier that part of the cerebral palsy concept is that it's non-progressive. Something happens early on and, and there's no further damage to the nervous system. So therefore, it's a non-progressive condition by definition. But clinically, do you see patients who do progress despite the fact that the definition says that they're not supposed to?
1: So the definition when they say that cerebral palsy is non-progressive is really referring to the disorder, dysfunction that's happening in the brain itself. Unfortunately, cerebral palsy can be hard on the body. Simil- and that combined with the natural wear and tear of aging can produce worsening motor abilities or, or function over time where people who had been able to walk independently may have difficulty due to worsening muscle tightness over time or increased pain, hip problems, back problems, things like that.
0: Mentioned earlier also that, for example, I think you said not all children with cerebral palsy, it's because of something that somebody did wrong. So that's addressing one of the myths that are out there about cerebral palsy. What are some of the other myths that need to be corrected regarding the mechanism leading to cerebral palsy or about people living with cerebral palsy?
1: First, I'd like to follow up on your comment that cerebral palsy isn't something that somebody did wrong. While not a common myth in the community, many parents feel some sort of guilt or weight that this their child's cerebral palsy was due to something they did wrong. Um, or some sort of insufficiency to their pregnancy and their own body. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that that's not the case, and that typically these are things that could not have been prevented um, by actions on the parents. The, one of the other big myths that our patients deal with is assumptions about their cognitive ability. Um, A lot of people are quick to make assumptions based on the way somebody talks or the way somebody moves about what they understand. And I have many patients who have significant difficulty with their movements to the point that they have difficulty talking and being understood and yet um, are actually quite bright, have beautiful ideas and things that they want to share. So I think not making assumptions about somebody when you first meet them is really important. Other things that we commonly see are assumptions that all people with cerebral palsy have poor quality of life. Uh, There are a lot of studies that show that overall the quality of life, while people may struggle more with different tasks being more challenging or pain or things like that, it's actually pretty high. And the biggest predictor of quality of life or one of the biggest predictors is actually social engagement and peer engagement. That's particularly true for people who are in the school setting. So one of the most important things we can do is to engage and welcome people of all abilities into these different social arenas so that they can have those experiences and enjoy just being a typical human.
0: You know, Heather, one of the uh, one of my colleagues in, in training, uh, somebody that I think you know from the child neurology world that preceded you in your in your training days, Dr. Jan Brunstrom, a child neurologist who herself has has cerebral palsy. And the power, the power of her presence in, in for families to see that their child could, for example, grow up to be a physician, a child neurologist. The impact that that had just by that representation was so important for the, the, the mindset that families had for the long haul that was in front of them for making sure that their child had every opportunity to uh, interact with uh, all uh, avenues in front of them. Um, your point about seeing it from that perspective is it's really key, and I wanted to emphasize that. In terms of interventions, what treatments are currently used to improve quality of life and function for individuals with cerebral palsy? There are there medications? Are there surgeries? Are there different therapies?
1: Typically, I divide the types of interventions we use for cerebral palsy into five different groups. The first and most important is therapies. The relationship with a physical or occupational or speech therapist is vital in terms of helping a child meet their own individual potential. In terms of things that the doctors do, there are medications, there are injected medications, and then there are surgeries. So we have many medicines that can be given by mouth or by G tube if needed that can help to relax the muscles or address some of the abnormal neuronal firing. Um, botulinum toxin is, and um, the various subsidiaries are are commonly used to help decrease muscle tightness for people with cerebral palsy, although there is a growing body of evidence that we need to look at um, the risks versus benefits of those types of procedures more than we had previously. Um, And then there are two big categories of surgeries. One are orthopedic surgeries, which are meant to correct the bony problems that can develop over time as a result of cerebral palsy. And there are some neurosurgical procedures that for the right patient can be helpful. And those include everything from, really, from medication pumps that deliver muscle relaxants next to the spinal cord to surgeries where you break these um, aberrant reflex arcs that are telling your body to tighten every time those muscles are stretched as a way of decreasing tone in the legs.
0: You touched on this a bit, but... There are other non-neurologic health issues that can come along with cerebral palsy that involve multiple different systems. Can you take us through some of those?
1: You may remember that I said earlier that there are five different ways we treat cerebral palsy, and I only mentioned four. That's because the fifth is addressing those co-occurring conditions that occur and that can have really complex interactions with tone. For example, if you're having pain, that can make your muscle tightness worse. Outside of the neurological conditions that we discussed earlier, there are a lot of orthopedic uh, challenges that these individuals can have. Scoliosis is very common. Um, hip problems, including full hip dislocations, are fairly common to the point that there are um, guidelines about making sure we're getting regular x-rays on these individuals as they're growing. Because they're not putting the same normal weight on their bones, um, osteoporosis at a premature age is very common. And I've seen many Um, People come in who've had spontaneous fractures that we happen to, uh, you know, pick up on in in clinic where somebody's upset or having pain somewhere. And we find out that they broke one of their bones or even their femurs during their normal routine cares. Um, Similarly, we pay a lot of attention to vision, hearing, GI problems lung problems, all of these different systems that we discuss about. And increasingly, and part of the reason we're meeting today, we're learning that there are specific, that there are increased risks for things like depression, anxiety, and even other more complex psychiatric conditions that these people face, which again, have complicated interactions on their general physical health.
0: Cerebral palsy, again, defined by the motor system, the historical definition, but as you've just laid out, Heather, so many other nervous system manifestations and non-neurological, including the consequences of having a a chronic condition. So all conspiring, it just makes sense that there would be adjacent mental health issues. So Aaron, thanks for waiting so patiently to get into the conversation but let's let's start talking about the mental health issues in individuals with cerebral palsy. From a neuropsychiatry perspective, how do you see? What do we know about mental health issues in CP, and where where is the field going? I think it's a mixed bag.
2: I think we don't know nearly enough, uh, and that is a huge hindrance. We still have a tendency to maybe prioritize, but certainly like conceptualize CP from a much more like motor oriented perspective, um, which is of course crucial, but it means we don't have enough studies. The data that we've got is pretty limited. And I think we see a lot of challenges around identifying mental health diagnoses in individuals with CP, even knowing how to study these things when people have challenges around communication uh, or a really wide range of underlying causes for their cerebral palsy and manifestations. It makes research really difficult. The data that we've got suggests that mental health symptoms or, or psychiatric symptoms or like formal diagnoses are really common. Uh, 20 to almost 60% of individuals with CP uh, have psychiatric symptoms or would meet f- full criteria for psychiatric diagnoses. And these uh, are common across the lifespan, but shift. We tend to see more trouble with uh, what are considered behavioral issues and kind of ADHD or executive function driven issues in childhood that start to shift more towards anxiety and depression and those kinds of diagnoses and symptoms later in life.
0: How do you think about the risk factors for mental health concerns? Your point is very well taken that it's understudied, underrecognized. There's some challenges for that clinical recognition, But from from your perspective, how do you think about the risk factors for mental health concerns? And and would those change, for example, with the child's age?
2: Yeah, I think as with any condition affecting the brain that then has psychiatric and behavioral manifestations, I think we have to think about a few different uh, components of people's experience. I think there is the direct impact to the brain of whatever the underlying cause of somebody's cerebral palsy is. So if that's a genetic condition or injury to the brain from oxygen being cut off or any of these things, those can very directly cause psychiatric manifestations. But then also secondary causes, so things like epilepsy that people may develop or intellectual disability, these are an independent risk factor for certain psychiatric diagnoses. So for example, thinking about people who have epilepsy, right, which occurs quite commonly in folks who've, uh, who've got cerebral palsy, epilepsy in and of itself is a major risk factor for depression, anxiety, ADHD, and these things. Beyond that, there are a lot of psychosocial factors. We see community involvement, activity level, things like bullying uh, at schools. These all can significantly predispose one to things like depression and anxiety. Two additional factors would be things like pain, which is... In and of itself, a significant risk factor for particularly depression and anxiety, but other things as well. Uh, We can see that as a predisposing factor for a lot of the behavioral challenges that can come about, especially if somebody uh, has either comorbid intellectual disability or a communication disorder, right? Which is something that we see in over half of individuals with CP. If you're not able to express a source of discomfort or kind of like really clearly express, a uh, kind of bodily need, or um, you know, medical problem that commonly can manifest with behavioral or other sort of things that are considered psychiatric manifestations, and then finally the impact on the family of raising a child with cerebral palsy uh, or really any uh, any disability can be enormous and can affect the mental health of parents, can affect family dynamics, can affect resources that may be available to the family. So all of those things together are a wide set of risks.
0: Earlier, we talked about how one of the the principles that gave rise to developmental neuropsychiatry, this idea that the way mental health conditions show up in neurodevelopmental disorders may look different than in uh, typically developing children. What what do we know about that in terms of the way mental health issues show up in individuals with cerebral palsy, is it different or is it too, too early in, this, uh, in our investigation to, to know that to be the case?
2: And there's a lot to say about it. I think that any time that communication and the ability to express one's needs and bodily functions is impacted by a condition, it then results in uh, delays to diagnosis, You know, people putting up with and managing really severe medical issues without help until it becomes recognized, and very often what we see is somebody presenting with aggression, behavioral dysregulation, you know, some kind of functional decline, and that's the thing that brings them to psychiatric care, uh, and one of the real challenges, I think, for a lot of individuals with CP is that by that point, we're then trying to manage the behavioral symptoms Uh, And that becomes so much at the forefront of everybody's mind that we're not so much looking for the underlying causes. We're not looking as clearly for underlying depression or anxiety or ADHD. We're just trying to tamp down a behavior that's making going to school difficult or managing one's activities of daily living at home um, more difficult, which is a challenge because the treatments for those kinds of challenges tend to be more sedating medications, Or medications that in and of themselves have lots of side effects, have their own risk factors, and can sometimes even worsen some of the underlying challenges. I think the classic thing that comes to mind is a little bit from sort of older school psychiatry, but the idea of somebody coming in with aggression, um, who's not able to communicate a particular need, and then a clinician using an antipsychotic medication to manage that, which then could interact with other medications, worsen symptoms like constipation. And sometimes the underlying cause is just one of those things, pain, gastrointestinal distress, those sorts of things. So it can become a vicious cycle.
0: Aaron, you mentioned a moment ago about how the impact on the family is is really paramount to understand. How does having a family member with cerebral palsy or even other potentially serious or disabling conditions impact the mental health of the entire family?
2: Having a child with uh, a developmental disability um, really significantly impacts families. The lifetime cost of cerebral palsy is upwards towards a million dollars. And that's not including um, lost wages, other impacts on the family. It can be really challenging on the family structure. For parents of kids with intellectual disabilities more broadly, up to maybe around 30% uh, of parents can have their own depression. Uh, similarly, and that's compared with less than 7% in uh, of parents of kids who, uh, who don't have a developmental disability. About 30% have their own anxiety disorders compared with around 14%. Uh, and just across the board, even families who have equal education uh, report lower incomes. There are greater rates of chronic illness in family members caring for an individual with uh, intellectual disability or developmental disabilities. So um, just across the board, there are lots of chronic stressors on, on families of kids with CP alongside other developmental disabilities. I also, maybe just to dovetail with that, another thing to just mention is that the risks of trauma and psychosocial stresses are higher on this population. Uh, and this is something we always like to stress, especially when a child or an adult with CP comes in with new onset psychiatric symptoms or behavioral symptoms that hadn't been reported before. We want to make very sure that we've ruled out something like a new traumatic traumatic event or some new significant psychosocial stressor, because those can be so commonly the underlying cause for like dramatic sudden changes. Um, and especially if individuals have a communication disorder, uh, it can be very difficult for them to advocate for themselves. So I'm certainly not saying that this is the case for everybody. I don't want people to be sort of frightened by hearing that. But it is something as clinicians that we really try to keep in the forefront of our mind when somebody has significant, dramatic new symptoms.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you made that last point as well. The, um, the greater risk potentially for exposure to adverse childhood experiences and traumas. And I also the, that it's not a simple layering on or additional factor that the underlying neurodevelopmental condition in the context of those adverse experiences and traumas, it's, probably, it's not a one plus one equals two situation. So as clinicians, we need to be very much aware of that potential uh, really problematic interaction and to be aware of that increased risk for exposure. Excellent point. Aaron, what are some of the strategies that we can take for treating behavioral health issues in cerebral palsy. We talked about medications, but in addition to medication, perhaps inclusive of medication, what what else is there?
2: Yeah, well, this is one reason that I'm so excited to get to be here talking with Heather today, because I think multidisciplinary care and communication between providers, uh, along with families, of course, is crucial to this. So often the medications that we prescribe may interact or features of somebody's movement disorder may contribute to anxiety or depression and vice versa. So really communication between providers about what they think is going on, especially when we can all be so siloed, um, is really is really pivotal. Um, beyond that, we always emphasize um, really paying attention to communication needs first, the kind of intervention when you're talking about psychotherapy or occupational therapy or speech therapy uh, or really so many other of our interventions. The things that we're going to be looking at are going to really depend significantly on a person's communication needs and abilities um, alongside other things like therapies that might benefit the, the family as a whole. So trying to address those things first uh, and then find beyond like really doing a thorough job of diagnosing what's going on, what the underlying causes could be. Pointing people to to the right kinds of therapeutic interventions is very important. I mentioned the team-based approach. We think a lot about trying to peel off medications wherever we can, or try if somebody's already on medications, because some folks with cerebral palsy will come to us on long lists of medications to manage their different medical, neurological, and other, other needs. Where can we either try to remove medications in order to improve function? Or where can we try to optimize a particular treatment so that it covers a few different um, categories of concern? If a medication can be helpful both with sleep and anxiety, and then also maybe be helpful with GI symptoms, um, why not choose that rather than three separate medications?
0: I got one last question for you both. I'd like you both to chime in on the topic of exercise, whether exercise is beneficial for individuals with cerebral palsy. Heather?
1: I think a lot of people are scared about somebody quote unquote breaking when they're stressing their body, but there's a lot of good evidence for the importance of exercise not only in terms of improving, you know, your muscle strength, your flexibility and those things that are important there, but also in terms of preventing long-term cardiovascular effects or osteoporosis or some of those other um, health problems that we can all get if we're not in physical health. Um, but I'll turn it to Erin, because there's also a lot of really important psychosocial factors and evidence that is really important from um, a mental health and quality of life standpoint.
2: Yeah, I mean, social engagement is so important and things like involvement in adaptive sports uh, and other kinds of like, uh, you know, increased levels of social activity and engagement can be really helpful, not only for physical, but also for mental health.
1: To dovetail on that, I had a patient come in who was so proud of himself because since his last visit, he said he has started playing tennis and t-ball and got to go wakeboarding. And this is all in the setting of an adaptive sports environment, but it really had important impacts on his self-esteem, his sense of self and accomplishment, and his ability to perceive himself in a world beyond the typical restrictive pattern that people will stereotypically put on people with cerebral palsy.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned adaptive sports uh, I have to say that one of the things that we we do here at Kennedy Krieger is a adaptive sports program called Bennett Blazers. It's a great venue for everything from recreational to elite uh, athletic experience, and uh, it's, it's with the same principles that you both just laid out in mind. So thank you to each of our guests, Drs. Heather Reardon and Aaron Hauptman. We hope that you, our listeners, have found the discussion informative and helpful. Please check out our entire library of topics on Your Child's Brain at wypr.org, kennedykrieger.org, ypr.org/studios, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to Your Child's Brain. Your Child's Brain is produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from Wypr and producer Spencer Bryant. Please join us next time as we examine the mysteries of your child's brain.